Wow, I'd love to tell you what I was going to say if I had any idea. That is awesome, awesome worship. Uh, for those who are not aware, I'm a guest speaker today. Been gone forever. I'm Larry for our guests, and uh, we've sure enjoyed a year, 18 months, two weeks, five hours. Uh, <laughs> we've enjoyed our great uh, time with you. You received us well, and we want to thank you. And it's kind of a bittersweet thing. The bitter side is the downside to interim ministry. We learned to love y'all, or let, let's do it the real Texas way, all y'all. We've learned to really love you and then uh, build strong relationships that are going to last a lifetime for us and last in eternity. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, the downside is leaving those relationships and going to build new ones all over again. And uh, we appreciate your prayers as we go do that. We want to finish well. And want to encourage you to pray for us over the next three weeks. And actually, we'll be here a little longer than that. But our uh, last official Sunday will be the first Sunday of Pastor Dave's coming. And that's the upside to all this. We've worked for a year and a half, sometimes night and day. And have looked forward to God's next servant leader. And many of you have poured your lives into preparing for that, and most of you have been praying earnestly for it, and we are so excited, we are happy with you, and don't let the other side cause you not to celebrate the upside, all right? We don't want that. We want to be rejoicing with you as uh, uh, we finish here. Several have asked how last weekend went, and I thought I'd just take a minute with you. We want to thank you as a church. You may not be aware of it, but you sent us to IPM's annual conference a week ago, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And we were on that side of the lake in the next church assignment it looked like could be in uh, Wausau, Wisconsin. So we went from there on Wednesday at the end of the conference to Wausau, Wisconsin. And uh, several have asked questions about that church. So if it's okay, I'll take a minute and tell you. It's an independent Baptist church. Oh, <laughs> what's the Lord teaching me? I'm not sure. No, we're excited about it. It's an independent Baptist church, about where you are in size, and uh, get the privilege of working with another pastoral team that we are just beginning to get to know on the way back. Uh, the church voted on this one, and at night on the way back, we got a phone call saying they just finished their business meeting and we got like 95 plus percent of the vote. Then the next statement worried me. The guy said, I've been here for years and years and years and we've never had a 95% vote on anything. <laughs> so you can please, don't put this on the, on the recording. They might listen from Wausau, don't do that. Um, but let me just share with you, they, they're a church that loves the Lord and needs some help again. Um, not similar to your kind of help that was needed here, but we're looking forward to what God will do there. So we begin there the first Sunday in August. So pray, Elaine's crying every night. She needs your help, so hug her. I'm not the most sympathetic guy. My favorite motto is suck it up, cupcake. 
Can you? <laughs> I know I'll hear about that. But we're, we really are having a great time as God decides what to do with us and next steps. Thank you for a great 18 months and looking forward to what God's going to do next. Pray with us as we uh, want to finish well here. I just want to say a word about uh, Richard McClish. Uh, I didn't know his last name. I only knew his first name through the 18 months I was here. But great man who loved the Lord. The second older male uh, leader and influencer in our death ministry. And I learned this last week that he was the first in the death ministry of this church to come to know Christ as Savior. And I think we ought to celebrate that. Um, and I, Bernie, before he preached, cornered me out in the hall and he said, you're not going to sit in and critique, are you, my message? And I, I said, no, I'm going to sit in, but I'm not critiquing. I don't want anybody critiquing my message. And uh, I did not his, but boy, John, the 14th chapter, Bernie rightly divided and encouraged and comforted the hearts of those who were here. So thank you, Bernie. I know you shepherded well in your bride in that ministry for a lot of years. Great job. Well, um, you see on the screen wrapping it up, I had three or half three standalone messages that kind of tie together under this theme, wrapping it up, winding our ministry down among you as interim. The, uh, the three are important to IPM. It's part of IPM DNA and something I'm supposed to do as I wind up ministry, helping you get ready for your next servant leader. More importantly than that in my heart is these are things I'm passionate about. And I'm anxious to, to share with you and encourage with you. And I pray that the Spirit of God is passionate about you hearing what he wants to say. I know he is. And uh, I pray that he guides every word that comes out in these next three weeks. It's a little difficult to approach these three subjects. I'll show you what the first is in a moment, but a little difficult to approach because you really are a church that's already practicing these things. The first of which is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you'd like to open your copy of the scriptures there. I want to talk to you about those who labor in the word. We know them as pastors. There's a Hebrew word for them, which is translated typically in the New Testament, elders. And there's a Greek word, which is translated typically in the Gentile setting in the New Testament, and it is the word for bishops. So pastor, elder, and bishop, it's all speaking of the same function, the same role. We in independent Baptist circles typically call them pastors. I want to set it up for you, though, in, uh, as I typically do, by looking at the entire book. You pull a text out of context, and it's a what? Three, Three of you have listened for 18 months. This is awesome. 
It's a pretext. I don't want to pull it out of context. I want you to see it in its context. The Apostle Paul has gone with Timothy on a missionary journey. They've completed establishing churches in Ephesus. And on this particular journey, Paul says to his young mentor, E in ministry, Timothy, I would like you to stay in Ephesus and set some things in order. And as you stay and do that, uh, there are key things that I want you to address. Now, a little caveat here. Paul has to write this letter of 1 Timothy, and many of you may not have been aware of this. I hadn't. I don't know. They added it to the Bible, I think, since I read it last. I'm joking. You'll note in the first chapter and somewhere around the third verse, Paul says to Timothy, I want you to remain. He'd already left him there, and evidently, Timothy had sent word to Paul, who had gone on on his missionary journey, sent word to him and said, I want to stay here. I want to be with you, Paul. And it's not that he was unhappy where he was. He just had a greater passion to plant churches with the Apostle Paul. And so Paul writes back to him and says, in essence, Timothy, no, no, you can't come. I need you to stay there and remain there and set some things in order. And by the time you get to 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says there are some key people that I'd like you to teach these new believers in Ephesus to honor, uh, to value, to look up to. And the first that he lists among them are, uh, um, love to tell you who they were, if I could remember. I'll tell you the second. They are masters. And by that, we in our minds conjure up this whole idea of there are slaves with masters, and that's what the Bible called them. But we have this Western view of this. It's like the early history of our country when we knew so many of the black slaves were being abused by their masters and needed some instruction on how to respond to them. It wasn't that kind of setting at all. It was more like an employee, not quite, but more like an employee-employer relationship. You work for a master, and that master pays you with housing, a roof over your head, clothing, clothes for your body, and food for your belly, and maybe give you a little extra beyond that. But it was a means of surviving in that very poor first-century culture. And many of the slaves, if you will, who had come to Christ, employees who had come to Christ, had unbelieving employers. Anybody here have any like that? Vote on this. Come on. Have, you have employers who don't know the Lord? Yeah, so many who do. How do you relate to them? And they were wanting to pull away from them. And Paul, through Timothy, instructs, no, honor your masters or honor your employees it's a great opportunity to be light in the midst of darkness. So maybe that'll help you Monday morning. Look forward to going to work. Why is there just a rumbling out there? Yeah, God has a new perspective on your employment. It's like go with the intention of being light and salt in the culture, the employment culture 
that you find yourself in that God, by his divine design, has given you. So honor them. Oh, the other group. Oh, how could I forget these? And he said to honor was widows. And all the widows said? All three of them said. Amen. Yeah. Paul gave some clear instruction to Timothy who passed it on to the church. Support those and honor those who are widows indeed. In other words, widows who have need and don't have the normal means of supplying for themselves. And by that he did not mean husbands, for they wouldn't be widows if they had their husbands. What did he mean? He meant if you don't have financial stability as a widow, it is the responsibility, he goes on to teach, for families to take care of widows. And I can't tell you how many situations I've been in over the years where people have been upset because the church didn't take care of widows when they had sons and daughters who had every ability. God had blessed them financially. They could have cared for them. And because they abdicate their biblical responsibility does not mean the church is responsible to pick it up. They should come alongside the family and give them counsel to obey the scriptures, especially believers. Amen? So he says, honor them, and he goes on and gives other instructions re revolving around that whole idea of valuing widows. Now you come to the fifth chapter of 1 Timothy, and he says to the church, and I said it's a little difficult to communicate this to you because you're already doing it. Just a challenge to you with now a face in your mind on who your next servant leader is. God tells you how to respond to your servant shepherds, pastors, elders, bishops. God tells you how to do it. And before we get into it, I want you just to know Elaine and I could not have anticipated being treated so wonderfully and marvelously Body, by a body of believers. Thank you for respecting me as a one called of God to shepherd you. You are doing what is here. But watch it is the encouragement. It's easy to slip away from what Paul asked Timothy to teach the church to do with regard to elders. Let's read what he has to say. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of, say it, church, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox. Doesn't mean the pastor is an ox. <laughs> you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the scriptures say the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father... Thank you for a church who's already putting this into practice. 
embed these principles in our minds so that the church is protected from falling away from these things as Pastor Dave begins to come and be one of the pastoral team, first among equals, who joins Pastor Timothy and Tim and Pastor uh, Dennis, John, and others who are serving in shepherding roles. Would you, my Father, help us to see what it is you expect of us and to put them into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we unpackage the paragraph, you know I have nothing personal to gain by this text, right? I am so out of here in three weeks. So having said that, accept what is being said from the text. Accept it as from the Spirit of God as a great encouragement to your heart. Here is what the text goes on to say. Elders, pastors, bishops, those who shepherd you, and you know what I think about it not being a single person but a team. I've taught you what the scriptures say about that. They must be focused men. They must understand their role and be focused on accomplishing it. And the text very clearly unveils their role. It first says, let the elders who what? Okay, all together beyond the third row. Elders who what? Rule well. The word rule is an interesting word, postreme, which means to set over or to set above. And it's the whole idea that the shepherds of the church, the pastors, are responsible to be over all of church life over all that the church does in its functions and purposes. Pastors, all pastors on the team, are free to speak into all the church life. Yo? Except the ministry that I'm involved in and doing. Would you smile, please? You're scaring me a little bit. I, I'm good, thank you. I went into a church, second church, where we served, where I served as lead pastor. And the church was 100 years old by the, no, 95 years old by the time we got there. And they had all of its structures and ministries and program in place. There was just one particular ministry that the church had that had done a lot of good over the years. It was the Ladies Missionary when I got there, I heard about good things that they had done, and I asked them for a report of what they had done that year, and I asked them for a report of what their plans are for this next year, and what the finances were that it took to accomplish all that. And in the presence of my dear bride, it's fun being a pastor's wife. I promised her she'd never be bored, and it's been true. I kept that promise. In the presence of her, they said, what does he know? What does he need to know that for? He's just the pastor. It's like, oh my. Do you not understand that pastors carry a responsibility and function that others in the assembly do? 
it's an awesome shepherdly role. It's the role of holding on the king's shoulders every ministry, every program, every function, every individual need within the flock of God. Certainly they need help to accomplish that, and that's not a part of this passage. Deacons walk in to help advise and, com and comfort and encourage and help in those roles. But it is their job to speak into all of church life. Being called to that, they live it unlike any other employee. Pastors are not employees. They live it 24-7 and never, ever, ever lose sight of that, my beloved. Your pastor doesn't punch in and out when he leaves, the load goes with him. Yo? He is over it all. They are over it all. What a load. That's not true of anyone else, including the deacons of the church. It's only true of those called to shepherd. And more than that, they must be focused not only on speaking into all of church life, but they must especially be honored or focused because they are men who labor in the word and doctrine. And I'll just throw this out with, with you here, at you here. The word labor is an intense word. In the Greek, it means to work to the point of ex exhaustion. To work bearing the burden and the word implies bearing the griefs that go with that burden to the point that they are exhausted. How do I describe to you the role of your next servant leader and your current pastors? They are men who when all the work is done, it seems like so much of the work and labor takes away from this one primary role that must be focused on. And still, during the week, and at the end of the week, and early on Sunday before often many people are up and functioning, the pastors who teach the Word of God to you have labored literally day and night. There have been times I've had such a struggle with the text that I didn't understand. I couldn't comprehend. I tried to get help, and I couldn't find the answers. And there have been times when I've laid awake at night, and sometimes at 2 in the morning, it finally dawns on me. That's what you mean, Father. And I can't wait then to pass it on to you. And I know what it is to labor the point of exhaustion because I know i got to be focused on feeding the flock of God. And so the text makes it clear at the outset all those elders and pastors must be focused men but more than that, by you they must be honored. 
Listen to how it's put. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of, say it one more time, all together. The word honor is the word pene. And it literally means to value. Listen, when you're ill, do you value doctors? Well, at least most of the time. Do you? Some of them need to be reminded they're not the Lord, right? Nonetheless, I value them because when I'm ill, I put my life literally, physically in their hands. When I go to a doctor, I don't ask, how much do you get paid? That is not in my head. I'm sick, man. I don't care what you charge right now. I need help. Right? Now, I may care later when I get the bill. But up front, no. I value what you're able to do in my life. Do you get what this text is saying to you? He's saying to you, those who labor in the word, you are responsible to value. And let me ask you a question. Let me see, how can I put it here? Does the one who ministers to your eternal soul by the virtue of his work demand greater value from you than the one who ministers to your temporal body that will not last forever? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Yes. Those whom God has called to minister the word to your soul and bring healing to your spiritual life, they are of greater value than those who take care of your body. Now, how do you express that value? Well, you can say as a church, well, I love my pastor and I honor him and I value him more than the rest, so I double honor him. But wait a minute, Paul takes it a step further and talks about how to express that double value. And this is where, for years, I would not teach on this because people would think I take it personally or I'm setting something up for me. I'm on my way out. I'm not going to get another dime. Well, hopefully another dime, but let's not vote on that. Verse 18 says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox. He's laboring for you. Let him eat. You sh- and the scriptures say, the uh, labor is worthy of his wages. Not the only, not even primary, but one of the ways of honoring, valuing, and expressing value in this culture especially, of the one who exhausts himself in the work for you. One of the ways is not to say, well, I never made what he made. Amen. Right? One of the ways to honor is what is given. I I sat in on the meeting when the deacons talked about what are we going to do with the next servant leader. And I couldn't have been more thrilled with the 
discussion of the outcome when they in heart were all saying we need to honor the servant of God in radical generosity now I wouldn't give that same advice to us pastors pastors get in trouble and I know you know this but pastors get in trouble when they think it's owed to them the apostle Paul at times wouldn't take a dime because he didn't want them thinking he's in it for the money at the same time he instructed the church your attitude is to be different than his I don't do it for a paycheck and from my heart I can honestly say I've never done that I've never labored for a paycheck I know what God's called me to do and why whether you gave me the money or not I'd be doing what I'm doing at the same time the church must say I value big time what God has given you to do all who care to said. The text says, and by the way, this isn't Larry saying this stuff. The text says also, they, the pastors, bishops, elders, must be protected. For it says in verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. There's not a period after do not accept an accusation, is there? Why? Because there's no such thing as a perfect pastor, present company excluded. <laughs> no such thing as a perfect pastor, present company included. And you know that by now painfully well. What's the point here? Their work is so lofty, so valued, that you must be careful about how you treat, listen carefully, their conduct, their character, their competency, and their chemistry with the flock and with the team that they're shepherding with. All accusations are after one of those things, conduct, character, competency, or chemistry. Church, when he's failing, it is not acceptable to accept discussion about that from a single person. Am I reading into the text or is that what it said? You must only accept it if it comes from two or three, what? Say it again. You know what that word is? That word is martus, which means we translate it or use our English translation of that word is sometimes martyrs. So you can only accept an accusation of conduct, character, competence, chemistry. You can only accept an accusation against that in the presence of two or three martyrs. That doesn't even mean 
just anybody in the church body, inside or outside. What does it mean? It means people who would rather die than lie. Are you with me? People who would rather die than distort the truth or challenge the character. They are people who, when they speak to you, are not speaking because they're concerned about themselves. They are speaking because they have a concern for the church and for the God-called leader and leaders of that church. My heart grieves because my pastor has fill in the blank. And I won't even say that to you unless two or three others are ready to die for that truth. And so when someone comes to you in the hallway and says, you won't believe what he did or what they did. What's your response going to be based on this text? Let me help you. <laughs> What's your response going to be? Going to be, oh no, where are the other two? Because the scriptures say two or three. Where are they? When they come, who've proven themselves to rather die than lie, I will will receive the accusation and we won't leave it there. We'll go to our dear brother in Christ together and we shall work it through. Do you know how many problems in church life that would resolve? If God's people would accept that responsibility, <coughs> the scriptures couldn't be more plain on it. And then lastly, I expected an amen then when I, when I said lastly. Since we pastors are so not always spiritual and are sometimes carnal, since we are imperfect and weak, we must be accountable. And that's what, what the text says. As for those who persist in sin, Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. That's not the King James or New King James translation intentionally, and let me explain why. Others that I use today were, but this is not. Let me explain why. Because the King James and New King James basically say, those who sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. If that is what the intent of the text is and the language of the text, then every Sunday morning before we do any worship, we need to stop and explain to the entire church the sin of Pastor Larry that he committed that week and of Dennis and of Tim and of John and of others who are serving in pastoral roles they need to have their sins told because that's what this text says. And I've worked with them long enough. I know they all sin every week. No, no. Every day. Say amen, you pastors who are in here. 
They must not be in here. We all do every day. No, it does not mean if they sin, it must be communicated to all. It literally is in the form in the original that says if they continue in sin without repentance, if they persist in sin in spite of the fact that two or three have come and given witness about their error, if they refuse to change, that's the point. And I can't tell you how, I, how passionate I am about this. That's a good place for an amen. If that's to be expected of us, should it not be expected as well of others? No, God doesn't expect perfection from any of us. God talks about dealing with all sin in the realm that it's known until a person is unwilling to change or repent or turn from. And that is what this text is talking about. Let that be clear. Amen? Okay, your turn. So, recognize the face up there? He's almost as good looking as your last interim. Great looking young man. With a great family and a great heart for God. With him and the team that shepherds this church with him. This is the so what. Let me just give them to you in rapid fire, rapid fire form. So based on what we've studied, free him without complaint to feed and to lead this flock. Amen. Be radically generous to him. Every opportunity you get. Why? Because he, Ephesians 4, 11, along with the other pastors, they are God's radically generous gift to you. And being generous in return is a reflection not so much on your attitude toward them, but toward God who gave them and toward the function God gave them to fulfill in your life. That's why to the church I would speak something different to the pastors, but to the church I would speak and say, I think the text unmistakably shouts out, be radically generous. Protect him from gossips. And maybe the better word is gossipers, but we're talking about people who would undermine. Could I remind you of an Old Testament text? Six things God hates. 
and seven are an abomination unto him. And the seventh is, and don't bring me a heretic because I didn't put it this way, God did. The first six things, he talks about the thing he hates. The last thing, he talks about the one he hates. I hate him who sows discord among the brethren. Wow. God hates that. Over the years, my beloved, I've watched people who were the biggest gossips shake their head yes when they say, when they hear statements like, I don't think people ought to sow discord among the drift. That's right. Very few who do it have any idea they're doing it. And I'm not challenging their hearts. I'm just challenging the fact they don't understand what it is to sow discord. It is to impugn conduct, character, competence, and chemistry to another within the body. It's to plant a doubt. And the scriptures are clear. Protect your leaders from that. Can't tell you how many times I've heard rumors spread around the church over 45 years of ministry that are inaccurate about the pastors that serve. You don't want to be a part of that. And I've not heard much of that in this assembly, but I'd like to say I've not heard any. That wouldn't be true. It's everywhere. Why? Because we're all falling short of the glory of God, us pastors included. All right, and lastly, leaders. That last part of the instruction just basically says you must be willing to have the hard conversations with your next servant leader and with the pastors that serve with you. Have the hard conversations with him. I've noticed something in you, in your preaching, in your life, in your ministry, that I've I'm concerned about and I want to talk to you not others about it pastors I want to speak to you and give us a chance to thank you for loving us enough to come to us and give your next leader that same chance fair enough Good challenge in light of wrapping things up here, getting ready for your next servant leader. Be careful how you minister to those who labor over you in the Lord, especially those who wear themselves out in the Word of God. Be careful. Now, we're going to sing in just a moment, and it's like, I, I never really like this text has little to do with the gospel other than I'd like to wrap this service up by saying to you my friend if you're here saying what kind of a church is this is this a Jim Jones thing that he's talking about absolutely not it's not a cult let me tell you if 
you're struggling in your life and in your vertical relationship with God, God has given people to those who know him, shepherds who come alongside, who love you. And if you've been walking through life without shepherds who love you and who are God's gift to help you in your spiritual walk, my friend, what a great motivation and reason to come to Christ. The great shepherd. You will understand that he laid down his life for you and those genuinely called would do the same thing. Those genuinely called to be your spiritual leaders would be glad to give their lives for you if you would become a part of the flock of God. And I hope your question is, how do I do that? It's very simple. I love the sweetest verse in all the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever, including you, if you will believe, you will have everlasting life, relationship forever with God. Come to him. God loved. God gave his only son to die on the cross for your sins. If you will believe that he died for you, you will receive eternal life from him and be a part of his flock. God gave. God loved. God gave. If you believe, you'll receive. So it's a yes or no deal. You believe day in my life I believed from that point on he says I have eternal life because I believe do you believe Christ died for your sins that he wants to be the savior and lord of your life do you accept him as savior and lord his blood paying the price for all your sin if your answer is yes then at this moment if you've answered for the first time in your life yes then at this moment, you have eternal life. As we sing, I want to invite you to come to the front. There will be others who, if you come, will meet you here and rejoice with you that you came to know Christ. Some of you may want to make some fresh commitments to the passage we studied today. To follow and value the shepherds that God has given you. Those are Encouragements in your life, and you'd like to make those fresh commitments. Come as we sing.